0: I have to say, um, this passage of Scripture that I am going to be speaking on, which we've really been speaking on for the last, think about it, this will be the third week now on chapters 19, verses 1 through 12. We will not go through the rest of this book that slowly, okay? But I felt like this series on Scripture and sexuality was really important. Um, We really want to, as we said the last few weeks, Make this a part of an understanding of some language and things in the life of our church. And, and so in January, again, the 27th and 28th, I think it is, we're going to have a retreat called Holy Sexuality. And, and love to have as many couples, um, a part of that because we are having this, um, it was this whole, uh, this whole theme of how do we speak in a sex crazed world around sexuality kind of filtering through all the different classes within our church. And, uh, so just I'm grateful for, for, um, Peter and Becky who have been a part of that. And so I get to share this last part of the message, which is really not going to be as much on sexuality as it is going to be around this whole idea of marriage that uh, is found here. And so I'm excited, but come with a bit of trepidation. But I do so in the sense that it's, you know, what's been kind of exciting for me, in a sense, is I've spent now a numbers of years as a pastor, having studied some of these things from the text and from Scripture. And, and and it's interesting that as you have more time to study it, you begin to really form in your heart what it really understand it in, in a depth that's not just in your head, but really more in your soul. And so I really kind of come to you in that sense. But I'm going to ask us to bow our head in prayer first, would we? Father, I really pray for a spirit of grace right now. I pray that you would allow for your Holy Spirit to kind of Come around this, that, God, we would be able to hear your word, that our hearts would be soft and open and vulnerable to you, that you would speak, Lord Jesus. Take this scripture, and, and um, as I've prepared my heart, I pray that you would speak. And that which isn't of you, that you would cut away, and that which is of you, that's right to the heart, that you would allow for hearts to be transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit and by the power of the gospel. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. I've done a lot of reading, a lot of studying. And as I was back in May, setting up what these messages would look like throughout this entire year, I was looking at different things, reading different things. I came across a magazine, and in it it said, um, A Man's Guide to Getting and Being Married, which I thought was interesting. So I was reading through all these things. But it starts out in this way, and again, it's a man's guide. Why do we do it, guys? Nobody needs to get married, not anymore, and nobody needs to stay married. This is not a Christian magazine, it's a secular magazine. That's kind of the viewpoint of the world. Yet at some point in our lives, two-thirds of all American men will commit ourselves to one woman, for better or worse, even though we realize that if a couple of nice kids like Alan Tipper, and I'll add Chris and Kim, or Ashton and Dummy, can't make it work, what chance do the rest of us have? And yet we do it anyway. And the question must be asked, why do we get married? And this is a secular magazine asking this article, Man's Guide to Getting and Being Married. Why do we get married because you love her because you like her because she wants to because kids kids sound nice Because she doesn't seem to be going anywhere Because you don't want her to go anywhere Because of weight, how old are you? Because of god, isn't that interesting if you're certain age, then it's probably god, but if not doesn't really matter because your boss is married because sex is good because she picks up the dry cleaning Because you know that even if it gets bad, life will probably be easier, happier with her than without her. Because you believe that it's going to work out. Because you know that even if it doesn't, it's not the end of the world. Mostly though, catch this as a conclusion, it's because you love her. Well, that's as good a reason as any. And I thought, love may be as good a reason as any for getting married, but I can promise you this. That alone won't keep you married. It won't be the reason you stay married. I think it's an interesting statement of our culture looking at this whole thing of marriage and its perspective on divorce. What I've come to understand after studying this topic, and Peter Ketcher and I actually began back in January 2010 really wrestling with some of this stuff around marriage, divorce, and remarriage and things like that. In fact, he's actually in Scotland uh, receiving walking for his Ph.D. In, in theology. Anyway, but what I discover working, particularly through this passage and surrounding context, one of the things I love about studying God's Word and having to do it over a period of time when you're in the same thing, is as I look at this message in these first 12 verses of chapter 19, it's not about divorce and the rules around divorce. That may be a surprise to you. But from my perspective, it's not about divorce and the rules around divorce, but this is a passage about marriage and the life God intends a couple to share through marriage. See, Matthew is continuing just a number of themes that are all throughout the letter, this Gospel of Matthew. Matthew didn't necessarily mean for us to read it in just a story-by-story you know, story occasion, although you can do that. A lot of people would just read it from the beginning to the end when they first got it and get the full theme of what's going on. And one of the themes that just stands out again and again, and it begins actually in Beatitudes, in Matthew 5, when Jesus gets up and kind of declares in the first discourse what this kingdom is all about. And he tells it's all about the heart. It's all about vulnerability, intimacy with God. Or he starts out and he says the very first beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And and as we said, blessed are the poor. The idea of poor starting out all the beatitudes is because of this. He's saying those who are vulnerable and forced to to the end of themselves, needing to look beyond their own resources, because that's what poverty means. You don't have what you need to get what you want. And those who come to the end of themselves, if you're at that place today, he's saying, be really happy right now. But what do you mean be happy? He should be really happy because when you come to the end of yourself, guess what? You you you, you come to the beginning of God working in your heart. When you come to that place of brokenness, so he's talked about this brokenness, this vulnerability, this place of being open and, and soft hearted before God, where you recognize that you need him in your life. And this theme runs all throughout Matthew, and is carried into Matthew 18 specifically. Because Matthew 18 is, is a very interesting discourse. We've looked at the first discourse, Sermon on the Mount, but when you come to the fourth discourse, which is Matthew 18, it's just before Jesus is, is going to go to the cross six months before, and he hears his disciples talking about who will be the greatest, and he's going, this is not the kind of community that I wanted to leave. I wanted to leave a community that is relational, not transactional with regard to power and influence and measuring up and all these things. I want this kind of community that is is full of grace and truth where there are vulnerable hearts. So if you look at Matthew 18, you'll see that's exactly what he's talking about. But what I find is interesting, after he talks about childlike vulnerability and the heart of a father that goes after the vulnerable and the hard work it takes to stay in relationship and the need for forgiveness, now he follows chapter 18 with these, this teaching. Matthew, I think, is positioning this purposely. Because the one place people become most vulnerable or have to become most vulnerable if you're going to have a good relationship is in marriage. Isn't it interesting? He takes from the community, the church, and he continues to break it down until he comes to marriage in this passage of Scripture. And I think, I think that Matthew's intending to do this. It's intentional. And when you look at marriage and you see it throughout Scripture, you see that marriage and the church seem to have a a, a likeness, a similarity. So that when Paul is, is talking in Ephesians 5, at one point he's talking about a husband and a wife, and he gets near the end of this passage in Ephesians 5, and he says, as he quotes what's here in chapter 19, verse 5, and also in Genesis, he says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then Paul makes this interesting change. You think he's going to say something about marriage, and he goes, This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ in the church. He's basically saying the vulnerability, the hard work, the forgiveness that takes place in the community of believers is the same kind of ingredients that take place in a marriage. And as Becky said last week, healthy marriages require healthy people. I think as you read through Scripture, you see that healthy churches require healthy marriages. And healthy marriages require healthy people. So I think when he gets to this fourth discourse in chapter 18, and he's talking about the kind of community that he's come to create, Matthew selects this account in this place, catch this, not to talk about when or who we can divorce. That's not the intention of this passage. In fact, if you look in your Bibles, and some of you might have NIV, and there's Bibles that if you want to take one of those out today and kind of follow along because I'll be looking at this passage. When you look at this, this passage, in, in many of them have the heading. And this is not, you know, Matthew didn't write the heading divorce. These are editors. I really honestly think a better heading for this is marriage as God intends. Because I think that's what Jesus' point is. Now, I just want to say up front, there are many different perspectives. You can read all kinds of commentators. It's, it's really no different than when those Pharisees came to Jesus. There was just in that day, too. There was the Hillel school and the Shammai school. There are many commentators on this. It almost breaks down in the same way with regard to the evangelical Orthodox tradition on this passage of Scripture. There are many dimensions and perspectives, and there is no way in a half hour I'm going to come close to trying to share all that. Okay, what I really hope to do is remain faithful to the text as I understand it and to the flow of the context into this greater gospel, Matthew. And I really believe it's my responsibility to teach as well as I can. And I pray that you understand and hear it in that vein. But it really is your responsibility, folks, to study scripture. I love what Jesus says at one time when he's talking to his disciples. He looks at him, he goes, you know what? You're not to be called a rabbi for you have one master and you're not to be called father for you have one father in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher for you have one teacher, the Christ, which is God's way of saying through Christ. He has given you his spirit to hear the voice of Christ, to hear his word in conjunction with the community and the traditions of the church and to come to an understanding and recognize that. So let's walk through this verses together. I'm really kind of excited to share it says in verse one. When Jesus had finished saying these things, these things being chapter 18, that fourth discourse, when he completed these teachings, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. In verse 2, large crowds, like they always did, followed him, and he healed them there. Just the expression of his ministry everywhere Jesus goes. When Jesus comes into people's lives, he begins to start touching and healing them. It may not always be physical, but he heals relationships, he heals, he heals your heart. And some Pharisees, he says in verse 3, came to him to test him. And the word test is important here. The word is more the idea of trap. And what it means is that they came to him with the idea of putting a trap so that it would break his influence. It would somehow stall the the movement that was being created around him. And so they came and they thought one way to trap them is to is to is to force him to take sides. And if he takes sides with one or the other, it'll divide people following him. And some will believe him, some won't, and it will just continue to remove his influence. One of the things they were also thinking around this time, if it, besides these kind of traps, they were also trying to plan, how do we actually put this guy to death? Because if his movement continues to grow, it may mean Rome's going to come in here and we're going to lose our power. So it's all about power. And so as they come to him, conspiring, they ask, verse 3, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Jesus addressing divorce, I think as the Pharisees were bringing it to him here, not divorce necessarily in general, but as the Pharisees understood it, Jesus brilliantly, as a rabbi, outsmarts them, takes them back to Genesis. They're really in the latter books of the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. They're probably in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, a couple of places here. And he goes, let me take you back further to hear a word of God on this. He says, haven't you read verse four? He replied that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. It's a really important word in the Hebrew here. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. I think what he is trying to to make very clear to them is you guys are talking about divorce. You're hung up on a certificate of divorce. Because they believed in some way, if you just were given a piece of paper, this certificate would give you the ability to kind of have a reason for getting out of it. And he was saying, on the other hand, not only was it for that, but there was another reason for a certificate of divorce, which is even greater than that. You know what it was? It was so that the woman would be protected because the woman in a patriarchal society was vulnerable. What would happen is whenever a guy would choose, if they went to the one, any and every reason, they would just cast them out and they could be cast out. And being cast out in... In a patriarchal community was a very scary thing to have happen, because you didn't have a means of support, you didn't have a means of, of finances or anything. So Moses, in order to protect the vulnerable catch that, vulnerable hearts, what does it mean? He gives a certificate to protect that person. And so here, I think it's really interesting. Jesus raises the bar to its highest level in this passage. He says God brings two people together in a holy, covenantal, one-flesh union that no little piece of paper certificate can divide. That's pretty powerful. So when you're just trying to kind of dissolve things because you've got a piece of paper, and they're looking at him and going, okay, if that's the case, Jesus, verse 7, they're off the game right now. He's already set them so they're kind of stinking on their feet. Why, then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? See, we get the idea that this wasn't God's original plan. We get the idea now that you've gone back to Genesis and you said this is God's intention. We understand that God's against divorce because they understand that in Scripture, Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, it says that God hates divorce. Now, I want you just to settle down for a second, because some of you who have actually gone through divorce and experienced it, all the shame is going to come up right now, all this guilt. And I just I just want you to push that away. Some of you who have experienced divorce in your family or you've been close to someone who's experienced it, you know how painful it is anyone associated with it and one of the reasons it says god hates divorce it's not that he hates you the person he hates that act he hates what happens because how it tears and it rips apart it was a union that he created that when it rips apart it just doesn't rip apart to two people it can rip apart all kinds of things in relationships does that make sense and that's why god just like anybody you hate to see someone in pain or causing pain. And so he says that, and God just doesn't want it. He wants for the sake of two people, for the family, for those to be able to say that you would live marriage as God intends. So why would God allow this? They asked. And Jesus replied, Moses has permitted you to divorce your wives. He's talking to men here. Because your hearts were hard. That is the key statement in this whole passage. But he says it's not that way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, marries another woman and commits adultery. Moses provided a certificate to protect the vulnerable and gave that certificate of divorce because of a hard heart. Now, he didn't say because of the man or the woman. He just said the hearts were hard. We got a condition here. I'm holding you to the original plan, Jesus is in a sense saying, and holding you liable for adultery if you divorce your faithful wife and then marry someone else. And this is unlike everything Jesus has just been talking about. I want you to catch this. He's not talking about hard-heartedness. He's saying that's why this is allowed. Everything you see in Matthew is about vulnerability, openness, about being in this place where your heart is soft to the power of God. This is a theme that runs all throughout Scripture, but it's framed if you look at these verses particularly, Look at Matthew 18, verses 1 through 14. I think it's really interesting. You look at Matthew 18, 1 through 14, and then you look at chapter 19, right after this passage on marriage, they both talk about children. Isn't it interesting that Matthew would frame both these with little children? In 18, 1 through 4, it's all about becoming vulnerable like a child. He says he puts his hand on a child become like this child. And then he says anyone who abuses this kind of vulnerable heart is in big trouble. Like a millstone should be put around their neck. And here's the kind of heart the Father has. He goes after these little children who have vulnerable hearts like lost lambs. And then He goes in and He says, now if you want to have the kind of relationship where vulnerability can be treasured, where two people can come together in intimacy, then you have to work like crazy. You need to, at times when there's things that you feel offense, you need to go and make things right. You need to begin to be in this relationship where with the power of God, He begins to help people get understanding. And then he says, you know what you're going to need to know in this kind of community and in this kind of marriage, you're going to have to have lots of forgiveness. Vulnerability just is all around us. So you go to the backside of this passage. Look at Matthew chapter 19 verses 13 through 15. Jesus practically has little kids jumping into his arms. And what are the disciples response? You're too important for that, Jesus. This is too much. And Jesus goes, Wait, let the kids come to me. This is the kind of heart my father delights in. He's trying to knock on the noggins of these Pharisees saying, you guys are all concerned about this, but it's about vulnerable hearts. Becky, last week, went back to Genesis and talked about the words naked and unashamed. And those two words, together... They're they're like it's naked and unashamed. It's like two innocent children Adam and Eve in the garden in the garden naked this idea meaning That you are open and vulnerable. That's what the word actually means to the power of God Unashamed Is this whole idea that you see someone just as God sees them? So that you have this opportunity to to, together in relationship allow God to work as he intends now here is where I think a lot of people, I think in my opinion, commentators fall into what I call a trap as well. They put all the attention, everyone and you even head it with the word divorce, on this phrase found in verse nine. Jesus says, "I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality," and everyone kind of that's the big annoying. That's what we're trying to find out. We're trying to find out what this means, and then marries another woman commits adultery. And I think what we end up doing is exactly what the Pharisees did when they came to Jesus. They're trying to find out, where can I stand, God? Where in my own, can, I just want to feel self-righteous about what I've done. I, you know, and we're trying to find out where we stand. So you take this word sexual immorality and you do what those schools did then. The school of Hillel was a very, much more of a liberal school. So when they took the word sexual immorality and they took this concept, they went to the idea of that it'd be anything. And people do this with commentators today. It means anything and, and everything to the point of burning a meal. And then some take it to the other end and become very restrictive and say it's only if there's been, uh, you know, an adulterous affair, or, you know, sexual immorality in that sense. But the word itself, if you look at commentators, they get doing just what the Pharisees were doing to Jesus. And I don't think Jesus intended this. They start doing just like Hillel and Shammai did. They start going, well, what's these words mean? Because the word porneia in the Greek can mean basically this idea that you were, um, unfaithful. You broke the bonds of marriage through sex with another person. Or it can go to the very general sense of, of the bond that had been broken so much through abuse or other things that there was no stick left in that bond. That's where the commentators go. I don't think that's where Jesus was heading with this. We tend to end up, I think, like them, and we get caught up in the exception clause, and then from it make rules. And from the raw truth that Jesus is sharing, it's really a hard truth. And I say this pastorally: it's not a rule or a law to determine when you can get out of a marriage. That's not, I think, what Jesus is intending here at all. He is stating a reality that marriage is such a strong union that when it, if you divorce, there is this sense, he says, you committed adultery. And you find this theme all through a scripture. You go, you, you, if you look at what the disciples say next, look at what they say in verse 10. The Disciples said to him, because you, if you don't look at this, you're going to miss it. Their answer is, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. Do you see what they're doing? They're looking at Him they're going, um, as Peterson says, the disciples objected to Jesus. If those are the terms of marriage, we're stuck. Why get married? How else do you make sense of the reaction? Because Jesus is not concerned here about rules to get out of a marriage, but about one rule. And that is that God, through the Holy Spirit... Begins to change and transform your heart so that you begin to be ruled by one thing and that is the love of God and when you begin to be ruled by the love of God through a vulnerable soft heart you begin to start saying how do I love this person in a way that is, is, is God's love through me. And in some cases, that may mean a very hard thing for a person who's very codependent. It may mean that they have to put up a boundary and say, I'm sorry, but no longer is this going to occur. And and you may need pastoral help and counseling around that. But that kind of love might not be one where you continue to stay in an abuse, but it's the kind of thing that says, I love you. And because I love you, I'm not going to find my life in you. The reason I've been so hung on to this is because I find my dependence in you. But my dependencies change. My heart is now in God. And it may be the very thing that you you do in a relationship where where a person hurts you and you see the heart is soft and what you're doing is you move into this again and in that situation, you don't move into this and sacrifice and love and and hold resentment. You, You make a choice to love even if you're going to be hurt again and you do that without resentment. If you go back to this, it's all about the heart. That's what Matthew, this is the theme that goes through here. In the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is looking at people and He says this, let's quit talking about rules now. Quit trying to justify what you're doing through rules. What I want you to do is look at your heart. If you hate someone, guess what? That's called what? It's just like murder. And people go, whoa. If you look at someone with lust, examine your heart. It is just like committing adultery. The whole movement of God through Jesus Christ through the church is about His grace. And it doesn't mean there isn't truth, there isn't things there, but it's all about grace. And when you come under the grace of God, you understand your own brokenness, your own sin, and you come to the end of yourself in that poverty, and your heart is vulnerable and soft, you are now at the place at the end of yourself where you begin the things with God. God begins to move in, and He begins to give you a love. He begins to transform you. It doesn't happen overnight, but as you continue to keep a soft, vulnerable heart before the Lord, He gives you wisdom in all relationships, even in marriage, and He begins to move and to work into your heart to fulfill all laws because of love. That's the Gospel. I think so often the church gets into and I look at commentators what they're doing is they're getting into this and they're they're trying to parse it out in such a way so they can kind of somehow define that if we do this, it's okay. And I think Jesus is saying, none of it's okay. We're far less than what God ever intended. But if you want what God intended, you need a vulnerable, soft heart that is naked and unashamed before I'm open to the power of God. I think this is such an incredible... Pa- I'm so excited about this passage of Scripture and what it, as I begin to understand it because as you look at this theme in Matthew 18, Jesus is basically through this passage putting the ability to live the kind of marriage life you want. Remember what Peter talked about, the Zoe life? Zoe life, eternal life, is the life that God Himself lives. If you want to live the life himself that God lives, you can't do it. He puts it out of our reach. And if you follow this passage of Scripture from Matthew 18 through Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12, and then we're going to get to just a second, the end of Matthew 19, in verses 16 through 30, you'll see this theme happening again and again. Follow with me, if you would. Jesus puts our ability to live the kind of life that God intends out of our human reach. Matthew 18:21 through 22, Peter's just heard about Jesus saying how you need to stay connected with people and keep and treasure this vulnerable heart. Go to people, make sure you have right relationship. And Peter's thinking, how many times do I got to do this? I have someone in my life who seems to offend me again and again, and so Jesus, I've got to ask you a question. What do you think? How many times? And and Peter knows that the rabbis of the day said three times. Three times is all you had to do to forgive someone. So Peter, in vulnerability, I don't think he's coming, and I don't think Jesus is going. You idiot, Peter. I think Peter, in all vulnerability, says, Jesus, seven times. And, and Jesus goes, Oh, Peter, you are so close. Because seven for him meant this. I think Peter was saying as much as I humanly can And Jesus goes, No, seven times seventy And it's disciples are going, Are you kidding? I can't we can't do that. Seven times, seven times seventy, that is a big gap. And then you come to this passage of scripture in Matthew 19, 16 through 30. These frame again this passage of scripture. It's important to understand this truth, this theme is framing this. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And he asks Jesus, how can I have Zoe life, eternal life? How can I live the life that, that God lives? And I see just, you know, just being expressed all over through you, Jesus. How do I have that kind of life? And Jesus is really, really smart because he knows the heart. And he goes, if you want to enter this kind of life that God himself lives and intends for you to live, obey the commandments. Because he knew this guy was over here. He knew this guy was trying to do it all. He's rich, resourceful. And so the young man goes, well, which ones? And Jesus just names a bunch of them. And the guy goes, great, I kept them all. But the guy's way too honest for that. He knows that even though he's kept them all and he's measured up quite a bit in his eyes before God, he's still missing something. So he says to Jesus, what do I still lack? And Jesus looks him in the eye and points his finger into the one place he can't do it. He says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Says the guy walked away sad. I think Jesus was sad. It says that when Jesus was walking away with his disciples, he made a comment to him. He says, you know, it's really hard for the rich to get through the eye of, the, you know, that whole thing, how hard it is for the rich. I think what he's saying is, look at you guys. If you are in your own resources, think you can kind of live this life that God lives. You're never going to do it. You're going to try and live that kind of marriage that God wants you to live. You're never going to do it. And so he makes a statement. Look at what the disciples say. It's the same thing they've been saying through all these passages of scripture. Are you kidding, Jesus? Are you, are you, you've got to be joking. Greatly astonished, they asked, who then can be saved? These are the disciples, the ones who've been following. He's, they're the ones who should be saved. And they're asking, "Then how can who in the world can be saved? Who can forgive like this? Who in the world can live a marriage like this? Who in the world can give up their greed and their sin of their heart like this? And Jesus looks at him and He goes, you guys, you're so close. Which, he says, with man, this is impossible. If you really want this, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Do you see how the vulnerability matches up with the heart, which matches up with the power of God? Do you really think Jesus is sitting down and giving us rules to say, here's how you get in and out of marriage? I think what he's saying, if you want to be fully in your marriage, here's how it happens. You have humble, soft, vulnerable hearts. And I think he also says it's very clear that because of hard hearts, divorce occurs and God protects vulnerable people through that kind of process. And you're going to be going, well, what does that mean? You know what, we'll talk about that in a second. But it is not as simple and cut and dry as we all try and make it. Literally, our hearts have to be and can only be changed by God. It is a deep work of the grace of God that brings a person to a point where they see the end of themselves and they in faith call out to His grace and mercy to bring about the kind of transformation of their hearts that only only He can do. That's what I want us as a church to be. I want want us to be a church that is so vulnerable and open to the power and presence of God that our lives are changing and transforming. And that when we hurt someone, we make a mistake, we go to them, we say we're sorry, and we do the hard work that needs to be done there, we do the forgiveness stuff, and intimacy begins to grow like a a rich garden full of plants. Because a life of forgiveness and marital intimacy and a life free of greed is impossible without God's life and love surging through us. And so in dismay and surprise and anguish, the disciples, they don't quite get it. They ask, you know, these questions, how often, how how many? Makes me even wonder if a few of them were even divorced. No comment on that in Scripture. And they say, if this is a situation between a husband and wife, it's a funny comment to make after that, isn't it? Unless Jesus was saying, this is so hard you can't do it. Better not to marry. See, this is not about rules to get out of a marriage, but it's about being ruled by God's love so that we live the life of God in our marriage. It is about a soft, vulnerable heart where all your trust is in God so that you don't just remain in your marriage or survive in your marriage, but you actually can thrive in your marriage. And it can happen. It doesn't happen overnight, but it happens if your heart is vulnerable and soft, trusting in God, continually moving to the place of repentance, where you work together as a couple and you do all you can. You are even so brave as to say, hey, guess what? We might need a marriage counselor. We might need someone to come alongside us to give us some help. We might need some peacemaking skills. We might need these things in our life to help us get to this place. How many here fix your own cars? Nobody? A few. How many here write your own legal papers? How many here, um, well, I was going to say make medical self-diagnosis, but you all do. Um, so what's wrong with going to someone who's a spiritual counselor advisor in relationships? If you're in that place. But recognize, again, Jesus is talking here about hard hearts. And there are occasions when the heart gets hard and there's someone who's vulnerable. And in those situations, those cases, God says he permits divorce. So some practical things. Now, let me just 19:11 and 12. It's interesting. I think Jesus says in verse 11, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given, which is very common for Jesus to say. He's basically saying he says this again and again through Matthew. Revelation is only received by those who are, who are willing to receive it. Yeah, there's people who are eunuchs, he goes on, and people who choose not to, and they do all these for the kingdom of God. But the reality is, to actually live out what I'm talking about is going to take a revelation, an opening of your heart to God. Okay, some practical things. So what about divorce? Because you're all waiting for the rules. And Jesus isn't giving rules, and I'm not either. But I will tell you this. I don't think... Okay, this is my opinion. I don't think this exception, because a lot of times you'll read in commentaries, well, there's two exceptions for which you can get a marriage and feel good about it, etc." There's two exceptions. Sexual immorality, which is the word porneia, which goes all over the board, and the other passages in Corinthians, abandonment. You know what I think those things are? I don't know if they're exceptions as rules as much as they're indicators of a hard heart. But that's not always the case. I've had plenty of counsel. I counseled with someone who who has actually um, had an affair in adultery, a one time kind of situation thing. And, and that person was grievously pained and repentant and et cetera. And, and in that process, there was there was this this real sense of a, of a soft, open heart and in all. That would be the expression of, of that repentance. And I got to tell you, when you do something like that, and I'll talk about this in a moment, when you when you step outside your marriage in some of the way, it just creates incredible pain. It does make your marriage almost impossible to work through for some people. But there are times when I've seen it, when that person has done that, and, and I have seen occasions where the person in self-righteous, kind of a purer than than anyone else attitude, sits there, and their very life is, is also very much a part of what created the hardness that caused the sin, but the hardness would never get soft. See, I really believe divorce is a hard issue. And I don't think this is about getting in and out of a marriage, that you get some rules so you can feel good about being justified in it. And I'm not saying that there aren't justifications. But I believe it's a really a pastoral spiritual discernment that takes maturity. To know what's going on in the heart, because it all comes back to the heart. It's a pastoral community issue to discern the hard heart and the course of action that one should take in a marriage. Or as a last resort, because God hates it, divorce. Now let me give you some important suggestions. If you would like to destroy your marriage, I'll give you some suggestions that you can think about doing. In fact, I think they happen quite often in marriages. One way, you know, if you want to look at it this way, um, I heard an author, I read an author who talked about the marriage, the bond is like tape. And when you take tape and you pull it off, remember, it, it, sometimes you can hardly get it off. But when you take it off and then you put it on again, it still has a little more stick, but then you keep doing it, you keep doing it, you keep doing it, you keep doing it. What you have then eventually has no stick. There are some of these things, and it doesn't mean that God can't put the stick back into it, because I think anytime you move to a vulnerable, broken place where you open up your hearts to God, He can change. There is huge hope in anybody who wants to say, God, would you intervene in our marriage? But here's something you need to hear. If you choose to in your marriage, do what I call these trust busters, pulling the tape up again and again. They don't have to be big things. If you lie... If you if you live in your marriage relationship where you are covering your tail, so to speak, through white lies, half truths, and all those kind of things. You can destroy trust. And you need you need to get around someone to begin to understand how do I not do that? I mean, it's real easy for you to, to destroy a marriage that way. Another one is this what I call yelling, screaming, name calling. You just do that long enough it will destroy trust don't keep your promise I'm not just talking about marital faithfulness with regard to sexuality I'm talking about just don't keep your promises do those kind of things just do it long enough and, and often enough where, where it's a really a subtle another form of lying but it's where you don't make your commitment you make, a, you make a commitment you just don't follow through and you do that enough times you just keep doing that and, they, and then they say, well, remember we talked about it, oh I forgot You see, for relationships to really work, two people have to choose to enter into it in such a way that they give themselves wholly to it. They come in in unashamed, naked, vulnerable ways where they're going to be honest and truthful, where they're going to be kind and and fight fair with one another in a way that they truly love each other because more important than their own individual worth is in the sense their worth together in this marriage. And how do you preserve that together? And so here's some questions that I... I wanted to to ask you to consider. Oh, you know, let me just say one other thing when it comes about this whole idea of divorce. One of the reasons I think it's so rampant in our culture today, you can give lots of things, but one of the things I've read again and again and again and again is that people, if you come into a marriage thinking there's a plan B, you can bet plan B will be taken. That's why I think in, in marriage ceremonies, vows and promises are so sacred. We, we have such a disposable kind of marriage relationships in our culture today that I think are destroying the heart of our nation. A few questions to consider. Jesus, I think, is pointing to something far deeper. So let me just ask you this, because it's really easy to sit here and go, yeah, glad we're not in this place. But let me ask you, how many of you, though not divorced, are separated from each other and pretending to be married? You're just, you're just roommates, or so you're financially working it out for the kids. And I want to tell you, the saddest thing in that is that kids pay for it. You model them for them a relationship that is less than intimate. When you have the power and ability to fall on your face before God together and say, God, what is it that we need to do in order for you to make changes? And we'll do whatever it is. How many of you have thought that this idea of two becoming one, especially women, meant that you had to lay down everything that was unique about yourself in order to be one, to fit into his world? That's not what Jesus intended. And I know it's very difficult, I think, often for women to stand up for for what they truly believe. And sometimes the greatest loving thing you can do is to say, I want my unique life in this life together. How do we do that together? how many have really thought about what it means to be vulnerable men to your wife think about it for a second. what does it really mean for you to be vulnerable and open in your heart trusting and soft i, I got i mean I, i'm really trying to learn this i'm trying to learn how what it means to have that kind of vulnerable open heart so that my wife can really show up and and, and be fully present with me with all that's in her i'm trying to do that with you as a congregation how many of you do that with your wives? How many of you even care? Are you more busy wanting to make sure you get that dollar and whatever it is? And Are you willing to be vulnerable again as a couple? I had an email this last week. Over the course of the last six, five six months, I have met with a young and extremely talented, successful businessman he came to my office a few months back because his life was crashing down upon him and things were in his marriage and his work. Everything was just painful. As I was reading his email that he sent to me last week, my eyes teared up and my daughter was sitting next to me. He said, Dad, what's up? And I just had finished reading his email and I had just sent him a reply. And, and I wrote these words to him. And I answered her question in this way. Your words so blessed me and caused me to tear up. As I read your email, my daughter looked over and said, what's up, Dad? And as I was reading your last words, I love you and thank you desperately for what you have done for me and to me. I said to my daughter, I was just so blessed by a friend's kind words. I tell you, sometimes as a pastor, when you hear how God's at work in people's lives, you go, this is what it's all for. Moments later, I heard a little ping sound on my computer. You know how that is, you a little email ping? And I looked at it, and it was from this guy. And it says, Kevin. Well, it's reciprocal, because I teared up writing that email. I can't explain in words how I feel inside. Your words several Sundays ago were God's miracle to me. I will never stop telling that story, and I will tell you now. I didn't know anything about this. He shares with me this story. He said, my wife and I, that couple Sundays ago, had such an awful fight the night before church and continued to the morning. Now, anybody ever had a fight on the way to church? Really? No one's raising their hands. Does that mean everybody does? Okay. Honestly, I never have fights on the way to church with my wife. She's, I come so much earlier than her, so we never drive into the car. <laughs> my wife and I had such an awful fight the night before church and continued... To the morning, and on the way to church, she spoke words to me that were so hurtful. I cried going to church and just felt helpless. Now I asked for permission from him, and then also I said I want your wife to email me before I use this because I want her permission. And uh, they both emailed me back, and he wrote, oh, this, "This is so typical, guys. She wants it to be clear that the part." that was left out was that I lost my head the night before and yelled and screamed and treated her awfully. I caused the fight. I hurt her. I pushed her to the point where she had said she doesn't love me more, which were the words that were so hurtful to me. So now you know the full story. He continues. I prayed to God before opening the doors that the message today would be one that was strong and powerful and that that would be our only hope. And you spoke of forgiveness and about holding on to anger and, we left the church in tears. We didn't speak another angry word. We went to brunch with the kids and we just talked about how applicable it was to our lives and our marriage. God was ready to show me a miracle. He allowed that fight. He encouraged and spurred me on to pray. He set up your sermon. He put us in that pew. And what would happened was a miracle. I can now say with conviction that I am a believer. I had prayed with him to receive Christ about four months back. Forever, I am a believer. It's still not easy. There are still problems, and there always will be. But God had brought me on a journey to find you and another Lysetta Free Attender who's been acting as a mentor to him. And God put me and my family in this church. And I wouldn't change a thing. The bumps and potholes along the path are only manageable with him. If I stay on that road, at least I will never be alone. I think it's kind of interesting. That's the key. You know, I'm, God's with me. And that is a better feeling than driving, which he's done, driving a Maserati on a racetrack by myself, round and round. Eventually, my tires would run flat, and all of it would be for nothing. That was two people that came in and said, God, we got to forgive. I, I think God, in His word, is really trying to make it clear to us that this, is, this life that he 's calling to us is a life of grace, and some people will, boy, if, if you don 't start pushing the rules, you 're going to have all kinds of problems, all this stuff. and I 'm going to go, yeah, what's going to come out of what's in the person 's heart will come out. So now we can deal with the sin. Because we're not in sin management. We're not trying to keep the stuff in people's hearts so we all look good. We're always about what Jesus was about, creating the kind of community and the kind of marriages where the heart really gets real and then God begins to transform it through His power and His grace and His love and His truth. So I'm going to ask you just to stand with me as we close in prayer. And you may be at a point in your own heart and life where you're just saying, God, I am broken. I am in a vulnerable place. It may not be in your marriage. It may be in your career. It may be in some other place. But you can't be in a better place than coming to the end of yourself so that the beginning of God's work, His kingdom, begins to move through you. So I'm going to ask you to pray. Father, if there is any heart here that says, uh, You've got to be kidding. I can't do this. But if you say you can, I'm going to let you in and do it. I just open my heart to you right now. Father, thank you.